Good morning. I got there. I found my way, found the path forward. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is John Duby. I serve as a senior pastor here at Rosedale Bible Church. Thank you, musicians. Thank you, Joel. I don't know if he's, he's out there, but thank you, Ron. Thanks for everybody that was participating in, in leading us in the song time this morning. It was a wonderful time. Uh, we're going to continue our worship this morning, and we have an opportunity to hear from a guest speaker uh, that's with us this morning, my good friend David. Uh, he, is a, he is a good man, and I'm, I'm very thankful that he is here with us this morning. Uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he is married. He has four children. They have a brand new baby, Lucy. How old is Lucy? One month. And how old is your oldest? Eight. So what are the ages of your kids? Eight. Okay, eight, five, three, and one. So he's a busy man. And Serena's with, uh, with him today. His wife is, is also here today. So if you see her, uh, make sure you just greet her and, and give her a good welcome this morning and his kids as well. Uh, uh, David graduated from the Master's Seminary. I graduated from the Master's Seminary. I graduated in 2012. He, he graduated in 2017. Uh, so we actually didn't overlap, but uh, I don't know, Danny, did you? No, he wouldn't have been either because Danny was before me. So uh, anyway, but we have the same uh, seminary graduate, same alma mater uh, seminary. So that is a wonderful privilege. Uh, David has the opportunity to serve right now at Grace Bible Church. Um, they're a church across town, a good friends of ours, and David serves there as an associate pastor, uh, specifically in the student ministries um, there, and that's where I met David as I was here before I was a senior pastor. I got to serve in youth youth ministry, and that's where we met and did some camps together, and got to uh, learn learn a bit about him and get to meet him and and to see his heart for ministry. And so I wanted to just share that uh, this morning a little bit as I introduce him. Uh, the The vision statement vision statement for Grace Bible Church is Colossians one twenty eight. Uh, that's kind of the, their vision, and, and Colossians 1, 20, 28 says this. It says, him we, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Uh, that's a great theme verse, right? I mean, I think all of us would say, amen. That's our vision. Uh, well, as I've got to do ministry with David and watch him do ministry, I, I can't think of a better verse that really just captures David's heart and his ministry. Uh, he's a man who proclaims him. He's a man who's courageous, warning everyone. <laughs> that takes courage. Uh, he is he's a good teacher. He's warning everyone. He's teaching everyone. And he's doing it with all wisdom. And he does it with all wisdom because David is a man of the word. He's a man who's saturated in the word for, for a long time, growing up, uh, being faithful for a long time, being a faithful Christian for a long time. And so I just see this uh, in David's life. And then, of course, Paul's goal in this verse, he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so I know that's David's goal. I know that in all of the ministry that he does and all the work that he does from students to adults and everybody in between, even in his own family, his goal is that uh, everyone that comes into contact with his ministry, uh, he would aid in that process of maturing them. And so I know this morning that as he comes to teach us, he will be uh, maturing us in our faith. And so, David, if you would come and let's give uh, David a warm RBC welcome. Thank you, John. 
Um, thank you for having me again. I'm surprised that you would have me back, so <laughs> I'm excited. I hope you are as well. Um, you can open up your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. Uh, one of uh, my favorite books in the Bible has always been 1 Samuel for obvious reasons. The hero is David. Um, let, me, let me pray for our time, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful to come here. We're thankful to praise your name. As we sing these songs, our hearts open up to who you are, and we're thankful for you. You are our salvation, and we can make our boast in you. And I pray through your word that this would be the, a stronger chorus in our hearts and in our minds. So use me as an instrument of your will to open up your word and sharpen us all through it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can still remember that moment 26 years ago when my life was forever changed. And no, it may be not the moment you're thinking of. It is the moment that I became a Star Wars fan. <laughs> now, I didn't know where my dad was planning to take me. I didn't even realize what movie I was about to see when we entered the theater. All I knew as I sunk into those movie theater seats, I was excited. This was going to be good. And, and the moment I became a Star Wars fan actually wasn't when all the lightsabers were flashing and all the star travel was happening. I, that wasn't the moment for me that turned me into a Star Wars fan. I became a Star Wars fan within the first minute of watching that movie. As soon as the words Star Wars flew across the screen and there's this opening crawl, some of you are com completely confused about what I'm talking about, for, but for the other 85% of you, this makes sense. As the, as the storyline crawl is moving across the screen, you're getting caught up, you're hearing the fanfare written by John Williams that just gets into you. And, and you, haven't, you don't know anything about the movie you're about to see, but all you know is, this is going to be good. Right? Sometimes opening credit scenes are like that, especially in the older movies, right? Like the Hitchcock movies. They say you can, you can hear every theme in a Hitchcock movie that's going to be in the entire movie in the first opening credits of the movie, right? All of it is right there in the opening credits. That's kind of how Star Wars is too. It's hinting at you, this is what you're going to experience. You're going to experience a lot of twists, turns, ups, downs, and at the end of the day, it is going to be an exciting ride. There's nothing like opening credits to a movie. And I would suggest to you today that 1 Samuel 1 and 2 should play in your minds like the opening credits of 1 and 2 Samuel. This is getting you up to speed really quick. This is hinting at themes, twists, turns, Glorious theology that you are going to see and learn about and enjoy in this entire book. And you don't know the faces yet that are behind these themes, but you're already getting familiar with them. That's how 1 Samuel 1 and 2 plays. Now, a story of a weeping woman might seem like an odd place to begin 
a story about battles, giants, coups, swordplay, and God's move to establish his human king and set him on his earthly throne in fulfillment of his Abrahamic promises. It might be strange unless you look at this story like opening credits of a movie. God is using this story to reveal larger themes, the depths and heights of the story that is to come. And these are the themes that we'll see all throughout 1 Samuel. So if you get 1 Samuel 1 and 2, you get the whole book of Samuel in a way. So then what are these opening credits in First and Second Samuel. Well, we, we do find a weeping woman in Shiloh, and, and she's got a problem. It says in verse 7, she is weeping and she won't eat. Now, in some ways, her problems seem outside of her control. You could look at her from a historical perspective. She is living through a horrible moment in biblical history that's probably exasperating her problem. There are sinners around her inflicting her. The leadership above her, particularly the spiritual leadership, are failing her. But in some ways, her own sin is contributing to her misery. So what's the problem? What's the lesson to be learned from these opening credits? Well, let's, let's just work our way through the narrative and let it unfold itself naturally. Verse 1 says this, There was a certain man in Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Well, here we are. We're introduced to a man, and if you have eyes to see, this is a man with an impressive genealogy. It's actually a man of priestly stock. You'll learn about in 1 Corinthians 6. He, his family, the Kohathites, will eventually take up key positions in the temple. But as you keep reading, something is wrong. He had two wives. This is the narrator's not-so-subtle way of telling you that not all is well in this little town of Ramathim Zophim, Israel. And this is where we kind of find our first heading. If you take notes, you can just jot down these first headings. If you have your bulletin, they're already written for you, but you can write them down again. First, the first exasperator of Hannah, Hannah's problem, is a bitter rival, a bitter rival. There are two wives in verse 2, and, and yet again, this is another instance of a concept called polygamy in the Bible. And spoiler alert, if, if you've never read the Bible before, this never ends well. And maybe we're asking ourselves, why would God begin the story of David this way? Why is God choosing to advance his kingdom plan with this guy? Isn't there a better guy that God can choose to use? Well, I have news for you. The Bible isn't a very sanitized book. It paints human lives and problems under sin rather accurately, if you ask me. Sometimes it is painfully inspired. 
You read the Bible and you see the pain of a sin-stained, sin-saturated world. And, and we're meant to shudder. How could God ever use a family like this? Will anything good come of this? Now, if you think about it, this, I believe this actually makes the Bible more pastoral and more helpful. It surprises us again and again with the grace and mercy of our God as he condescends with promises, with his presence, and with his powers into our real sin-stained lives and our sin-stained problems. This is the God who we serve and we worship. But let's just talk a little bit more background before we begin here. What is polygamy? Is the Bible endorsing it here? Well, the Bible paints a consistent picture of multiple wives. It's painful and problems. But surprisingly enough, polygamy is never explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. At the same time, it's, neither, it's, it's not approved either. It's clearly outside of God's Genesis 2 plan. God gives dozens of examples, and this chapter being one of them, for why multiple wives is a very bad thing. And perhaps there's wisdom in all of this. It's, it's similar to good parenting strategies. Sometimes it's not as effective to just tell your kids, don't smoke, as it would be to bring your kids to a nursing home or a hospital and show them bed after bed of those, uh, those lives that have been destroyed by cigarettes' consequences. Perhaps that's also why the Bible just gives us example after example. Also, you could look in the New Testament. It's clearly condemned there, so the Bible is not silent. If anything, Jesus holds a very high standard. You should even have a two-wived heart inside of you. You should be a husband of one wife. Well, so then why did polygamy happen? Well, it may actually surprise you to hear that polygamy wasn't really that popular in the ancient world either. They, as it turns out, didn't need revelation to figure out that this caused more problems than it helped. You needed a lot of money to support multiple wives and, and all the children that they would produce. And, as we'll see in our story, two wives could present a lot of bitter rivalries in the home. So it wasn't a very popular thing. So then why did Elkanah have two wives? Well, there's many reasons for it. More wives could, in one sense, increase your wealth and your prestige. More wives could produce more children and help you run the family business. But most likely, a second wife could solve the problem of the first wife, that problem being barrenness. Your first wife can't have any children, so you take a second wife. Why were children so important? Well, you, you needed family care. Family care was like your future nursing home in a way. It was your, it was your an insurance policy after you couldn't work anymore. Your family could take care of you. Also, you needed family to be inheritors. Kings without children could lose vast amounts of wealth. You needed a family line. Without descendants, you would have no one to pass on your name or your land. And that's most likely why Elkanah had multiple wives. He was a man of his time who needed children. 
Matter of fact, look at your Bible, verse two, it says this explicitly, right? He had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. See, this was Hannah's problem. She was not producing any heirs. She was, at least in a social context, a worthless wife. Now, in the ancient Near East, a barren woman could be ostracized. Uh, They might not always be outcast physically, but they certainly were lowered in social standing. And in Israel, children were considered a blessing Psalm 127, three through five, right children are a blessing from the Lord. Happy is the one whose quiver is full of them, but to have none. Well, God must not like you very much. Perhaps that was the thought. And jump down to verse six, we see her rival, that is Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Notice there is a spiritual problem here. The Lord is keeping her, and that is what Penina is pestering her about. But we also see in this verse that Hannah isn't the only one with a problem. Just because Penina has children, does not mean Penina is happy. She is a bitter person who pesters her rival. Now, judging by the order of the wives and and the order in which they are introduced to us, we are left to suspect that Penina was indeed the second wife, and this is lashing out that is a result of bitterness in her heart. She is a bitter person, and bitter people are never happy until you become as bitter and unhappy as they are. Now, that being said, both women, in a a sense, I would say, grab our compassion a little bit, right? In the eyes of Genesis 2, we can say, this is not good. Nobody is a winner in these sorts of problems, but we've got to admit, both women here share a part of the problem. Both women, yes, have external circumstances beyond their control, but we see both women are using their circumstances as an excuse to sin. What was both of their sins? Well. Let's look at it. Penina, real quick, her sin, she lashed out bitterly against Hannah by reminding her, maybe day after day, of her worthlessness. There's a certain commentary that I always read, Del Ralph Davis, I always read him when it comes to Old Testament narrative. He is, he is rich with insights and theological precision, and he also has a way of bringing the, the text to life, and he, he kind of imagines a, uh, a scene at the family dinner table that really shows you what Penina perhaps was like. So we're using our imaginations here, but this is very interesting to me. Here's Penina. Now, do all of you have food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Uh, What did you say, dear? 
I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah? Oh, oh yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She can't have kids. Why not? Why? Oh, but because God doesn't let her. Doesn't God like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did, did I tell you I'm pregnant again? You think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? Now, that's Penina's side of the table, perhaps, What about Hannah? And I've said, I think Hannah has some share in her own problem here. We do need to be careful, though. We are reading into the white lines between our words. And we can only see the end of year after year after year of clashing between these two wives. But I don't think Penina was the sole sinner here. Matter of fact, if you look at the verb there in verse 6, Her rival used to provoke her grievously. The verb usage expresses an idea that Penina has caused Hannah to enter into a state of bitterness and irritation. So this is bitterness inside of Hannah now. This is uh, irritation inside of her. The text says Hannah was provoked by Penina. It doesn't say what Hannah was provoked to do, but I'm guessing we could imagine what that might be. I'm almost certain that Hannah wasn't provoked to love and good works towards Penina. I'm also pretty sure that she wasn't heaping on Penina the burning coals of love and grace either. I'm pretty sure she had literal coals in mind if she could have chosen any coals to heap on Penina. Now, I mean, I can, aff- I can imagine what the reality was because we, we learn of this man, Elkanah. Or Elkanah. He, he had this special practice year after year when the family would go to the yearly feast of giving portions of the sacrifice to all of his fam- family members. And after he had given Penina her portion and her family's portion, we read in verses four and five that he always gave Hannah, a double portion or a choice portion. Now, I'm sure that when Hannah got that double portion, her pride would swell up inside of her. And as Benina maybe would trot her children before Hannah, Hannah was also sure to let Penina see the extra love that she had received from her husband as well. And, and even though Hannah didn't have any children, she had something that her rival could never have. And this is always what she wanted to communicate. I've got the guy. I'm pretty sure she even found temporary joy at the sight of the woman standing at the distance with all of her children, glowering in envy and bitterness. 
And she probably felt justified in this, right? She probably said to herself, I am the victim here. I deserve this. Yes, I would say both women probably aggravated their own situation by their own sin as well. Hannah by her bitter anger and irritation, Penina by her provocation and malicious talk. Now, the thing about sin like this is it never seems to solve your problems. Have you noticed that? It can't satisfy you for very long. Even if the person that you are angry at becomes bitter, you're still not happy. Sin of bitterness just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats away at you. And so here's the situation that we find ourselves at in Shiloh. We have not one bitter rival, but two bitter rivals, two bitter women. And verse 7 reads, And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Both women only get more and more bitter until finally... Hannah can't take it anymore, and she cannot go on. In fact, notice this. She cannot eat anymore. Now, to not eat at a feast like this is like not eating at the family Thanksgiving meal. This is a, a great thing to do, a grievous thing to do, a thing that everyone will notice. And this leads us to our next exasperator of Hannah's problem. If we were to follow an outline in this story, we've seen the bitter rival. Let's look at the bumbling husband. It might surprise you. Bumbling, David, really? Is that the best your thesaurus could do? I could think of a lot better words to describe this husband. Maybe the jerk of a husband or maybe an egomaniac husband, or maybe the real cause of all of her problems husband, or maybe, as I used to see him, a bad husband. Why do you use bumbling? Well, it's because, surprise, surprise, even though we are tempted to not like him, we have to admit Elkanah was a good and godly man as we read this story. Look at verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. What are Elkanah's merits? Well, notice, first off, he is a good man. He is generous to both wives, but he is especially generous to his barren wife. This would probably not be the response an ordinary man would give. But also, he is godly. From every hint we are given in the narrative, we must conclude that he is a godly man as well. Look at year by year. 
Now this may be a reference to the Feast of Booths that came after the harvest time. It was kind of like the Thanksgiving celebration together for all the Lord had given. But notice also the language that is used. Elkanah went to sacrifice and to worship the Lord of hosts. Now that's a familiar term to us, but did you know that this is the first time it is used in the Bible? The Lord of hosts means the Lord of Sabaoth. It means the God who rules and reigns over all of heaven's armies. He has total resources. He has complete command at his disposal. This is the Lord of hosts. And notice this, we also find this very same title on the very lips of Hannah herself. What does this mean? It means Elkanah was a good and godly man who taught his family about the Lord that he worshiped. Matter of fact, when you see Hannah's prayer in chapter two, it is saturated with theology. And even though we don't really like Elkanah very much, we have to admit he is a good and godly man. And we find, in spite of Hannah's condition, that he loved her. She wasn't ostracized like others in her situation might be. She was given an extra generous portion. He was sensitive to her, caring towards her. And this is particularly noteworthy of his character when you consider the times that he lived in as well. Now, I'm joking here. If you were to pull up a copy of, you know, the Israeli Times of the day, the headings would be a little bit shocking and and terrifying, similar to how we feel about, you know, balloons floating across our sky, except it's much worse. These were what the Israeli Times were saying in Ilkhana's days. Uh, Here's one one shocking um, heading for the local newspaper. Locals shudder under international pressure. This was not a good time to be a wealthy Israelite, by the way. Uh, at this time, the, the Israel, Israelite tribes were pressed between enemies on all sides. If you had money, you'd be, you'd be in danger to raiding parties. Ammon was pressing from the east, Philistia from the west. Or how about this news article flashing before your eyes? Private fence sales are on the rise. Oh, that was a joke. <laughs> they didn't have fences back then. But... The other thing that was going on in these days was everybody was on their own. What is the repeated theme of the book of Judges at this time? There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or how about this newspaper clipping? Shiloh ranks first in spiritual corruption. The high priest's sons were using their position and their power at the tabernacle to feast on their fleshly appetites and not serve the people of Israel. They were turning the house of the Lord into a place of prostitution and not worship. Now, in this context, it's no excuse for Elkanah, but his godliness shines out all the more. He was an unusual man of his day. He was a good and godly husband. And now, how does this good and godly husband lovingly speak to his wife in her greatest moment of spiritual need and emotional distress? Like a bumbling husband. 
Right? Look at what he says in verse 8. Hannah's not willing to eat, and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? (laughs) Now, I suppose, in one sense, all the husbands in this room could be arguing that you got to give them points for trying. But in another sense, all the wives in the room are saying this, silence would have been wiser at this moment. Uh, His words to his wife read more like the get well cards from Job's friends at this point. And Okana's comforts probably hurt a lot. They probably hurt the most because of what he can't say. Notice what he did say, but then also think about what he can't say. He can't say to Hannah, Hannah, you are worth more to me than ten sons. Can't say that. All he can say is, am I not worth more to you? Why does he say this. Why can't he say that? Well, because he is flawed, because he is weak, because he is a bumbling husband. He is good and godly, but he is still a sinner. He's given in to the pressure of his day. He's given in to the social pressure. He needed a family, and he couldn't trust the Lord to provide. In one one sense, we could compare him. He is a lot like Abraham. He is a lot like Jacob. He is a lot like Moses. He is a lot like Hannah. He is a lot like the children of Israel. And yes, he is a lot like you and a lot like me. We like to make quick excuses for our sins. His life was hard for sure. Our life is hard for sure. But what made his life worse was his sinful responses to it just like it made Hannah's life worse and just like it made Penina's life worse. Doesn't that just sound familiar? Your difficult circumstances are often a mixed bag of blame. And you can say whatever you want about your circumstances, but one way or the other, you and your sin have something to do with it. But here's where the tension continues to rise, and here's where things get particularly interesting as well. Hannah's life is bitter, and it feels beyond her control. Her and her husband's responses to those challenges have have only brought them both lower and lower, and now Hannah can't take it anymore. She refuses to eat, and in her uh, her lowness, she can only watch her food grow cold. And look at what she does in verse 9. Then after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now as as Hannah can no longer take it anymore, in all of her pain, she is actually led to the place that she needs to be. 
She is in a humble state. She is in a needy state. She is in a shameless state, you could say. She doesn't care what people think of her at all. And because of that, she has an amazing freedom and boldness before God that she didn't have before. Her prayer is simple, naively simple, you could say. It's as if she's praying as if God will hear her. And she's praying as if God cares about her problem. That is where her lowness has brought her. Isn't that just when prayers are the sweetest to you? It's when they are to me. When I'm most defeated and most humbled by myself and my situation. When I stop resisting God and my pride and go to him in my need and cry out to him. Her ache is real. Her ache is very real. But she's crying out to a God. But notice this, her ache is real, especially painful to her because her theology is actually strong. Some people have aches in this world because their theology is weak. Her problems actually come because she knows her God so well. Hannah's tears, they're real because she knows who her God is and what he can do, and that's why she's aching how long. You could look at Psalm 6, for example, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Or you can look at Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Let me put it this way. Hannah was a good and godly wife as well. She was a sinner, but she was godly. And you can see that she knew God even in the way she prayed. Verse 11, she vowed a vow to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. Notice once again she is offering prayer to the Lord of hosts. She's talking to a God who is big and powerful, who has purposes that are above her and beyond her. But she's also talking to a God who cares about her and her little problems. By the way, isn't this the way Christians are taught to pray as well? Matthew 6, our Father in in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then in the next breath, give us this day our daily bread. Keep us from falling. She has a genuine prayer to a true God that she knows Genuine prayer is a mixture of great boldness and deep humility. She prays to a God of total resource, complete universal command, and she asks him to remember her. Be mindful of me. Now she's 
not saying this because she believes that the, the Lord has somehow forgotten her or looked past her. She's saying, act towards me in a certain way. Remember me in your activity. It's not that Yahweh has forgotten her. Whoops, I didn't see you there, Hannah. This is covenant language, actually, that brings us right back to Exodus 2, verse 24. God heard their groanings, the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. When God remembers, God is acting towards his people. That is what the prayer is. Act a certain way towards me in accordance to your covenant faithfulness and, and loyalty. And if we look at Hannah's if-then statements, if you will do this, I will do this, we see a vow in verse 11. Now, a vow is always a free will thing. It's never commanded in Scripture. It's a free promise to God to act in a way of worship. And the question is, should we make vows like this? Remember, once again, a narrative just reports. It doesn't prescribe. Uh, the lesson of Hannah is, hey, just, just make a vow and you'll get whatever you want? No, the Old Testament doesn't command this, but it does legislate it. It says you should take your vows very seriously because the Lord takes them seriously. As a matter of fact, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus urges us not to vow at all. Why? Because God hears and cares for all of your words anyway. It's not some magical potion as people in his day were treating it. Matter of fact, Jesus would have us pray like this, our Father, my Father in heaven, I plead with you to take this problem away. I'll live for you and worship your name if you do because I believe that you would want to bring this to pass. But even if you don't, I'll still worship you and live for you you are my God, and your way is always perfect and worthy of my praise. This is what this kind of prayer is. Lord, give me a chance to worship you. But even if you don't, keep my heart from valuing anything more than you. Now, we could comment a few moments about the specific nature of her vow. He, she, she says no razor. It's a life of total dedication and, and set-apartness to God. It's most likely a Nazarite vow, but this, was, this would be an unusual Nazarite vow because usually a Nazarite vow would be given by the very person himself who is dedicating himself or herself to, to 30 days of separation where no hair is allowed to grow and no wine is consumed so this is an unusual vow on her part. And notice, this is the, the interesting part to me. This prayer doesn't solve her problems. Matter of fact, one could argue it makes her problems worse. Because this is where we come to the third and final exasperator of Hannah's problem. We find ourselves face to face with a blind priest. Verse 12, she continued praying before the Lord Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. 
And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. Now notice a few things. He was sitting. This is probably a position of honor and authority. Yet for all of his clout, for all of his position, he has nothing spiritual to offer Hannah at all. He just saw another uh, drunken woman, which by the way is really rich when you hear about this guy and his sons. And we're not really expecting this perhaps because this is actually a theme that comes up again and again in First and Second Samuel. It's, it's a question. It's a question of who has the right stuff, right? Who's got that it factor, that spiritual it factor? We would expect the priests and the kings to have the right stuff, but we're again and again introduced to people that seem like they should have it, but they don't. For example, Eli, politically, socially, he should have it. He should have the sight and vision of God to be used by God in such opportunities as this, but his physical blindness is but a picture of his spiritual blindness. He curses and mocks the godly like Hannah and protects and guards the sinful, the wicked, like his sons. And Hannah, on the other hand, is someone who we would not expect to have the right stuff. She's got nothing going for her in this life, but in the end, God uses her to advance his purposes. And the key is she is humbled by the circumstances of her life. And she is ready to be useful. That's the contrast that you see all throughout 1 Samuel. The one who is humbled by their life and therefore useful to God, or the one who is not. And let's read verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunken neither wine nor strong drink, but I have uh, been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Once again, notice all Hannah's pain has actually led her to this place. But then notice this. In spite of Eli's blindness spiritually and his misjudgment, God still uses him. Verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Did you notice that? What solved her spiritual problem? It wasn't exactly the answer to her prayer at all. What she needed is the same thing you need to know that you have been heard by God and to have confident, bold, joyful access to him even in your distress. What happens next? God moves. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Ilkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him 
from the Lord. Notice that word, remembered, once again. This is the language of a God who is acting according to his purposes and his plans. This is God moving forward his covenant purposes, even through the darkest moments in his people, just like he did with the children of Israel in Egypt, just like he did with Noah. Genesis 8-1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were on the ark with him. Or Exodus 2-24, and God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and he knew God is choosing to move his purposes forward through this situation. And this was God's plan all along. But let's let's pause for a second. Because there is an amazing caveat of encouragement here for us. Here God shows covenant faithfulness and loyalty to Hannah and to Elkanah through receiving and listening to the weakest of human priests. That should be encouraging to you. You could look at it this way. You could look at it in in an idea of parallel encouragement, right? If, If God can encourage someone through that guy, then maybe I can be an encouragement as well. But I think the greatest encouragement is the lesser to greater encouragement that we have here. And to describe what I mean by lesser to greater, I have to illustrate. Now, I am not from around here. I am from the land of water in Minnesota, where it rains in the summer and snows in the winter, and where you can't go out in the winter for fear of getting lost, versus here, where you can't go outside in the summer for fear of getting vaporized. (laughs) But in Minnesota, we don't have a lot of great things that you have. We have to kind of live with what we have. And I grew up in a small town in the middle of Minnesota. We didn't have in and out double-doubles. Didn't even know what they were. Never even heard of them before. But I knew what I did have because I could see it from the front door of my house. I could see the golden arches far away. It was McDonald's. It was the Big Mac. It gave me great joy as a young teenage boy. And it's kind of, this is, this is a lesser to greater argument. I had no idea what I was missing out on. The, the idea is, man, if, if you like McDonald's, you're going to love a double-double. Now, some of you might not understand that, so I'm going to give you another illustration. Also growing up in Minnesota, we didn't have a lot of the impressive amusement parks that you guys seem to have here by the dozen. We had one right there in central Minnesota called Paul Bunyan Land. (laughs) Now you laugh, but to me, a six-year-old boy, it was the greatest place on earth. It had a huge roller coaster that must have lasted at least seven seconds. It had a haunted house that, well, quite frankly, was more scary going through backwards than forwards because you got to run into people on your way. And it also had, and this was the most magical part of Paul Bunyan Land, it had a giant, 
a giant animatronic Paul Bunyan who greeted you, a giant statue of a man who greeted you as you were walking in. And as kids, we were always blown away. How did he know my name? I mean, I know his jaw was out of sync while he said it, but how did he know my name? I loved Paul Bunyan as a kid. Paul Bunyan Land was the greatest place. But the lesser to greater argument was, I didn't know. And if I liked Paul Bunyan Land, I would have loved Disneyland, right? Paul Bunyan Land was nothing. Paul Bunyan Land was this. Disneyland is this. And this is the lesser to greater argument that we see here. If you like the kind of way that God uses a high priest like Eli to minister to his people, you are going to love the way God ministers grace and peace and mercy to you in the person of Jesus Christ right now in heaven. If God can use a man like that, how much more does God use Jesus Christ my high priest right now to minister to my need as I boldly go to him in prayer. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, is perfectly pleasing to God at all times. In Hebrews 7, 25, he saves his own to perfection, constantly interceding for them. In 1 John 2, 1, Christ's position is a specific encouragement for believers who are still struggling and bumbling through this life in sin. Romans 8, 34, we never face a day of condemnation before God or from our present circumstances, because Christ is for us before God. And we know this, Jesus Christ is the one who has suffered and died and paid for all of our sin. And he is the one who is even interceding for us now and bringing us all the way to heaven. If you like a terrible priest like Eli and the amount of encouragement he can give you, how much more encouragement is there to find in Jesus? Well, like God's patience with Eli, our time is running out. Let's, let's quickly just summarize the rest. We see in chapter 1, 21 through 28, Hannah fulfills her vow, vow, uh, vow to the Lord, and Samuel is brought into the service. Notice there again, she repeats that play on names, I have lent him to the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11, Hannah offers a rich prayer to Yahweh where she says things like, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none beside you, there is no rock like our God. Take, talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she 
who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. And this really kind of brings the the beginning, the opening credits of 1 Samuel to a conclusion. Notice the theme in verse 2 the Lord is our rock. That also is the theme in the final song of 2 Samuel where David says the same thing, the Lord is our rock. And we see here God is glorious, sovereign, powerful, even in our weakness to move forward with his kingdom purposes and, pro- and produce a human king. Now, what is this opening credit sequence previewing for us. Well, in a sentence, this is 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. This is our entire preview that we've seen here. God delights to use improbable circumstances and improbable people to move forward with his powerful kingdom purposes. And that's the message that we see again and again in 1 Samuel. God delights to use improbable circumstances and people to move forward with his powerful kingdom program. The question is, will you be humble before him? Not will you be great before him, but will you be humble before him? This is what we've seen. We've seen improbable circumstances and people Notice God doesn't wait for Israel to pull themselves together, to act, to invade. They aren't left on their own. The longer God leaves people in their, on their own, the worse they get. And God, notice he delights to use improbable circumstances and people. This is God's MO, you could say. He sometimes intentionally seems to wait for us to be on our last rung before he invades He ordains Israel to taste slavery for years. He ordains Hannah to taste the bitterness of her irritation and inability. He ordains kings like Saul to show the people the fruit of their own heart's desire. He ordains David to be the runt of the family and never and never get to go play Israelites and Philistines with his older brothers. God ordains Also, that Jonathan and Saul will have the only swords in all of Israel so that Jonathan will have to drive out the Philistines just with his armor bearer while Saul and the army is left shaking for fear. God ordains this. Why? Not because God delights in punishment or being cruel or because God has something for weak people. There are lots of people, for example, that God doesn't help. No, 
Why does God delight to use improbable people and circumstances like this? Because God delights in you seeing his glory and his power through your weakness. Because weak people are people that see themselves spiritually in the right way. Because when you're strong, you tend to rely on yourself. You tend to look at the size of your shield and your sword and take courage from that rather than the God who's on your side. You tend to trust in your 401Ks, your wits, your looks, your power, your strength, your wisdom. God delights to use improbable circumstances and improbable people. Because you trusting in the sufficiency of God's will and God's way is better for you than you getting your own will and your own way. God's give good gifts given to untrained hearts are not good at all. God wants to train your hearts to receive his gifts. Or maybe you could say it just like this. In the end, God really wants you to sound a whole lot more like Paul in 2 Corinthians than anything else. He wants you to say, like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And maybe, on a personal level, he means to grow you in personal sanctification through the hardest times in life that you will face. And maybe, perhaps, he wants you to learn the same lesson that John Newton learned in his life as he penned the other hymn that he wrote that we're not quite so familiar with. We all know he wrote Amazing Grace, but my personal favorite John Newton hymn that he ever wrote was this, I asked the Lord that I might grow. He says this in this hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. Hey, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sin and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe Crossed all my fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou, will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And, and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we are 
humbled by the way in which you so often work. And we pray that we would be quicker to humble ourselves before you. We pray that we wouldn't hold up the things in our life as greater treasures than you, but we would come to you in our weakness and cry out to you for strength and for grace, and that we'd be able to receive all the good things that come to you with the right hearts. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.